Shuko, hello. Hi, Jeff. Do you remember the last time you had a regular phone call? Without the video on, or...? Yeah, not a video call. A phone call, like ring, ring, hello, you don't know who's on the other line. I have a theory. I, I have a theory why most of our calls are video now, uh, when we still have the, the old technology. It's not just because everyone likes looking at these, these beautiful, colorful screens, you know, and everyone's funny backgrounds and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's because, clearly, they convey a lot more information. You know, you get a, you get an extra an extra data set coming through mm-hmm. uh, that helps you or helps the call seem more personal, revealing. I actually made a test with this. I met a mentalist on a video call. Okay, I, that was that was also my initial reaction when I got the request. But here we are. Um. Wow, I guess it's not only me who's super curious to see how this went for you. And um, I have to admit, I'm also quite curious to see what he found out about your identity. Uh, well, I think you'll be a bit surprised, uh, but... I can imagine. We'll get to that <laughs> anyway. Welcome everyone to this episode in which we will discuss identities. Not just in the physical world, but mostly in the digital world. And it's going to be magical. From know-how to wow, the Bosch Global Podcast. Wow. Can I ask you something? (laughs) I was giving you the opener, come on. Jeff, can I ask you something? Absolutely. What did you think about the mentalist thing before you talked to him? Oh, I, I, I was... And be honest. Yeah, I, I'm fine being honest. That's no problem. <laughs> I uh, was was skeptical. Uh, it's it's just not mm-hmm. it's just not for me personally. But that's that's a personal thing. Um, but I agree that the information uh, we can barely hide from others. That's um, in our voice. You know, it's in our appearance. It's in our behavior. Mm-hmm. And that's all fine. No, no problem there. I mean, it's it's driving social interaction, and it means you know, obviously, we're not just you're not just machines. You know, you're humans. You know, you have a lot of emotions and lived experiences <laughs> to share. That's clear. That's uh, that that is true. Although um, from one or two people, I could imagine there's a cyborg or a robot sitting behind that face. Yeah, sometimes um, but, I get a little curious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But um, then uh, let's listen to your meeting with uh, what, what was his name? Torsten. Torsten Havana. Okay, so Torsten Havana, cue the tape. Torsten, good day. Welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you. I'm fine and I'm happy to be part of the team. We're very glad to have you. Are you going to be able to to read my mind exactly? No, and I don't think that there is anybody (laughs) who can do that. Very often it comes to making an impression. And Mm -hmm. it's it's about an illusion. An illusion that makes you think in a certain way, and I, when I know that you think in this way, I might be able to get some cues and clues about you that normally you wouldn't tell me about. So how do you, how do you gather information about the way I think? Well, actually, this, is, this can be done via body language. So okay. let, me do, let, let me do one thing with you or with the listeners if they want to participate in it. And it's okay. very easy. Think of a moment where you have eaten something that tasted very, very bad. So think of a bad taste that you had in your mouth. And go back into that moment and make it intense. So live through that moment again. 
And now, with this bad thought in your head, focus on the way you feel, focus on the way you are sitting there, and see if there is some tension in your body. And now, let's change that inner thinking and think mm -hmm. of a moment where you, where you tasted something very, very good. It was, very, it was really a delicious meal that you had in your mouth. And go through that experience again. Feel as you felt in that moment. And now focus on your body. How relaxed is it? <laughs> and how do you feel now? Which one felt better? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's very clear. The, the second one. The second much one better. is much better. Much more right? relaxed. Uh, truly. And, and like you said, the, the, the body feeling changed. And isn't it surprising how quickly that changes? So it, took, it was a matter yes. of seconds, right? Yes. So this is a very, very important thing that we need to know, is that between our thoughts, our mind, and our body, there is no real limit. Mm -hmm. So the way you think will materialize in your body. And mm -hmm. with, what you've just experienced now was that the effect of a good thought, of a thought that you like, is relaxation. Sure. And the effect of a thought that you do not like, even something as simple as a bad taste in your mouth, so it doesn't mm -hmm. need to be something heavy or serious. Even something as little as a bad taste in your mouth manifests in your body as tension. What are kind of some of the, the next level stuff after, because I think a lot, of, a lot of people are aware of, okay, a smile is good and a frown is bad. <laughs> What are some of the, the next level observations that you, that you use? I, Not to give away all your secrets, of course. No, no, no. That's, uh, Actually, th these are secrets that are meant to be given away okay. because they are so handy to know. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a huge fan of saying, well, this gesture has this meaning and this gesture mm -hmm. has that meaning. And because actually, I think there is a lot of nonsense around there. I've always felt that way. Thank you for saying that. Okay. <laughs> What you can observe else is... Is there tension in it or is there no tension in it? And this is actually, this is one of the biggest secrets. These are the two cornerstones of body language. It's relaxation or tension. In everyday life, that's all that there is. So is there a way that you specifically change how you're observing people? Yeah, of course. Well, quite obviously, I focus on the face, on the shoulders and on the hands. Mm -hmm. So all the gestures that we can make with our feet, well... They can be quite good to know, but in, in a yeah, Zoom if I'm, call... Yeah, if I'm bouncing my leg up and down like I'm really nervous, you wouldn't see that right now. Yeah. It's, ve it's very hard to see. What I can see is, and most people don't recognize that, is how you're breathing. Because when I'm observing your shoulders, mm -hmm. I see the way you are breathing. Oh, now I'm very conscious of my breathing. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, there is, there is a very, very good sentence that is, uh, the energy flows where the attention goes. So um, Indeed it does. So um, yep. that's very good to know, by the way. If you want to observe somebody, it can be very, very handy to tell you beforehand, well, I'm going to observe that person. Because as the energy flows where the attention goes, your attention will be there and you will see much more. That's, that's fascinating. And, and it makes perfect sense when you, when you think about it, but it's not something which would necessarily be obvious otherwise. 
Huh. Of course, it's just it's still the subconsciousness that does all the work, but your consciousness is telling the subconsciousness, go there, observe this, and tell me everything that you see. And this, again, sure. can be something that is very, very handy in, for example, in negotiations mm -hmm. or in, in, in a moment where you have to be on the spot. Many people think it's something esoteric or too spiritual. And actually, it comes from the spiritual world. And I'm a very spiritual person, but it's, okay. a, it's a very handy technique to use in everyday life. I, I have to say, I, I will be totally, totally upfront and admit I was very skeptical about this idea. I had never, <laughs> uh, I had never really understood what uh, a, a mentalist actually did or what, what the idea was. When, when this idea came up, I was... Uh, Less than thrilled, but uh, <laughs> all of the ways, all the ways, but I was open nonetheless. First, yeah, first I thing. didn't see that. Um, <laughs> there was no tension in your body when you introduced. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This, uh, but but the way the the way you explain this, it, it's um, as I said, it's it's non obvious to someone who wouldn't know it. But as you explain it, it it is perfectly perfectly intuitive. Coming back to the the topics in our episode is you know preserving our personal data. Yes. So now. Clearly, of course, you are uh, a gentleman, and you would never use any of these any of these skills uh, for anything less than uh, a good deed. But <laughs> if I thought that you would, yes, if I thought that you were going to try and get some information from me, yeah, what are some things that I could do to kind of guard myself aside from just putting a wall up, not letting you see me, and not saying anything? If you want to get something out of somebody, it's always at the emotional level. That might be pressure, for example. That might be fear. That might be joy. That might be that you like me. And then it's easier for me to get some information. Another thing is, with kindness, just be kind. You know? Okay. Picking up the right use. For example, you have, you call this trappings, right? I can see the background of where mm -hmm. you are sitting right now. And I can see a lot of things that tell me many, many things about you. For example, that you like comics, that you have seen the movie with Tom Hanks because there is this little ball with Wilson on it, right? Wilson, yep. So, for example... You got me. In, in order to, to know, for you to know that I'm really interested in this, I could pick up these cues and I'd say, oh, I've see, you've seen this movie with Tom Hanks. I really loved it. Uh, this ball is called Wilson, right? And... Most of the time, it's as easy as that. Again, if it was the case, like you said, in, in some negotiation yeah. or in, in any sensitive discussion, yeah. if there was a, a piece or a certain kind of information that I, that I didn't want to reveal but you really wanted, how does that, how does that work? What, um, how do I defend myself from, from you as an, a, quote, attacker? Well, as I told you, pressure is one, one thing where you reveal some things of you that you might not want to reveal. As there is a link between our mind and our body, mm -hmm. you can reduce the pressure when you are relaxing, not only in your mind, but also in your body. In mm -hmm. a totally relaxed body can be no really tense mind so as soon as you okay. feel that there is something mm -hmm. going on that you are stressed that you are in doubt that you are angry that you are sad mm 
because of something that somebody told you right now in a negotiation, mm -hmm. the first thing that you can do is relax. Just relax. Mm -hmm. And tell yourself, very good sentence, I'm allowing myself to relax. Not I'm relaxing, oh, like I'm relaxing, that. because this puts you again right. under pressure. <laughs> and just breathe. Just concentrate on inhaling and exhaling. And you see, as, huh. as much as your body relaxes, your mind will follow. That's, I like that sentence. As much as your body relaxes, your mind will follow. I like that a lot. I have to remember that. And it absolutely uh, is worth sharing. It's, it's excellent. As I said, non-obvious but highly intuitive. Uh, it's excellent. I'm, I'm really glad that uh, we had the opportunity to share this with our listeners because I think for sure there's uh, some very interesting takeaways here. Yeah, I'm glad you like it. <laughs> Thank you very much. This has been uh, illuminating. I'm happy that we had the opportunity kind of to do this exchange with someone else because you could kind of take the lessons from Torsten and apply them to me as we were actually doing it. Um, even if maybe necessarily I didn't, didn't actually want that. You know, because there are times when we want to control who knows what about us, of course. You know, we, we need to control it, even. And I think as much as being social with others, like, like you and I are, are coming into this, this now, it's important to protect your privacy. That goes without saying. And it's something that has become increasingly difficult as well. There's personal data about us being stored in so many different databases these days. It's practically everywhere. I totally get what you mean with it feels like we're losing control. Perhaps let's take a look at the way this evolved on the internet. So this is Christian Borman. Well, what we started with was that you created an account on every website. And then you have your own username and password on every website. And people started having like hundreds of passwords they have to remember. And then you choose in secure passwords or you share passwords and in general login credentials. Yeah, for sure. Uh, personally, I know that I have hundreds of passwords. Um, I, I know I have hundreds of them. I don't know what they are exactly because of the way I store them. So that's, that's nice. Um, but it is time-consuming and can be frustrating. Uh, but Shuko, do you have a, a personal system for managing all your credentials? Well, I actually do have a password manager. Um, and the challenge is already to remember the password of this password manager as well. <laughs> oh, with all the other passwords <laughs> that we also have for Bosch and for everything else. So I have to admit, it is quite challenging. Um, do you have it like on a sticky note under your keyboard? I do not, because then I would be recommended by our uh, security officers um, at the office. But it is true that I try to, yeah, it's, I try to always link it to something personal, which is already not very secure. <laughs> oh, I'm going to socially engineer that. That's going to be great. <laughs> I can't wait. But, um, but some years ago, internet companies came up with something more convenient for people like me. So the solution was to create something called OAuth and OpenID Connect, which is a form of federated identity. So these are services that you can use for logging in at uh, other services. Right. So, for instance, uh, if you have an account on a large social network, just exactly. as an example, <laughs> or this other account on another big search engine, again, for example, they can serve as the identity provider so that you'd be able to use these accounts to log in to shops or forums or whatever. Exactly. So it's just a click of a button to log in and no need to remember your username and definitely no need to remember your password. And now comes the but. Oh, 
you always need to put it in the butt. Yeah, sure. But you're right. Um, this means that big identity providers are basically in control of your data. Um, right. And if one day they decide they don't like you or me, they can terminate your account, which means you lose all of your identities with all of these other services too. And it doesn't even need to be the case that they decide that for you on an individual basis. If the service itself is down, you're out of luck. And that happens. These systems do go down. We just, just saw an example of that with one of the large media providers a couple weeks ago. Exactly. And I mean, then you have really a lot of people shut out of all of the services they've literally connected with. Um, That's right. So it's very inconvenient. Um, yeah, inconvenient is the word for it, yes. <laughs> it's the diplomatic word for it. Yes. <laughs> um, but Jeff, something different. Um, going back to this story about the mentalist, so... We assume the mentalist could read your mind somewhat, but I don't have that ability yet. And, you know, we are still trying to get to know each other a little bit better. So I was hoping I could read maybe your wallet. Could you empty it for me and put everything that's in there in front of the camera? Sure. Only because I trust you. Ooh. Only because I trust you. The big words are coming out. (laughs) You have my, uh, obviously, thousands of dollars in fiat money, clearly. (laughs) Monopoly money, you mean? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> we won't get into the cryptocurrency discussion right here. Um, but so, so obviously, the, the the standard things: driver's license, mm-hmm. um, a real ID, which which is um, like a travel ID now in, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, credit cards, um, no coins because I don't use the the uh, European wallet. Um, so that's pretty pretty analog. Okay, but. Um I see you don't have any photos in your wallet. Uh, outside of my ID photos, no. Okay. Um, so if you want, seeing as you showed me yours, I'm going to show you mine. So this is what I have in my wallet. I have my uh, organ donor card. Uh-huh. Um, I have the papers to my car and to my motorbike. Um, I have, uh, I do actually have coins because living in Germany, who does not need to have mm-hmm. cash on them? I learned that the hard way. Right. And obviously, <laughs> um, yeah, my, my bank cards as well. Yeah, so pretty standard. <laughs> pretty standard indeed. And no photos either. <laughs> okay. Um, but isn't it convenient to hold these things in our hands literally and not think of this as all digital. Sure, of course. I, I mean, on the one hand, since since there's a huge dependency on these online platforms, and, and honestly, it's only gotten bigger. But Christian works on some technology that could help us regain some of this lost control that we were talking about. Um, and he's at the Bosch Research and Advanced Development Unit, by the way. What we would like to have is a system where you, as a C person or like me as Christian Bormann, I'm the owner of my identity. I hold my identity in some form of digital device, let's say a smartphone, and I am in full control of what happens with it. So a smartphone wallet, pretty much. We looked at our, our physical wallet and we actually have almost everything we need that's that's in there as mm-hmm. in the smartphone already. That's there. You know, my credit card information is in there, some membership cards, movie tickets, boarding passes for, for travel. All of that is stored in my digital wallet. True. Most things in our wallets have been digitalized. Um, some governments are even starting to digitalize official documents like driver's licenses and ID cards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but do you really have full control over your smartphone wallet? And that's what this technology would enable. It's called self-sovereign identities or SSI. Yeah, so, so SSI or self-sovereign identity is a concept of a form of user-centric identity. User-centric in the sense that 
the user should be in control over their identity. They should have full access to their identity. They should be the ones giving content for the use. Uh, and it should be protected, of course. So it's not something that can be easily stolen. And then the other aspect in SSI, and that's a really important aspect, is data minimization. Mm -hmm. So first of all, user-centric. So I, as a user, am in full control. And then data minimization, I don't want to show everything. I only show exactly what you need to see. Mm -hmm. Okay, so how does that actually work in practice? Is there a, a real-world scenario? I might have an identity card from the government. I might have an employee card from Bosch. I might have different aspects of my identity. And I can control all of these on their own. I can decide with whom I share what kind of information. There was a pilot project where Bosch and a few other companies teamed up with hotel chains to use this digital wallet for hotel check-ins for business travelers, right? Um, so when you check in at a hotel in Germany, you have to show ID. And also to take advantage of business rates, you want to prove that you work uh, for a certain company. And what we were creating was the German government created a pilot digital ID card and the companies created some sort of business card. And we used this together in a hotel for check-in, meaning that you go to the hotel and instead of having to like manually show your plastic ID card and then them writing down all, all the fields and so on, you scan a QR code and you present your card and that is the whole login process. Yeah, and for sure, especially over the last couple of years, we've all become pretty accustomed to QR codes. Yes. Uh, but I have to admit, I'm also a little skeptical of these. Uh, you know, I don't know exactly what information is either being being taken from me or being given through my phone. Mm -hmm. uh, when when I use that, it's a little bit of a, a black box. Because um, maybe it's just something I don't want to want to share. And so that brings us back to the theme of privacy. And that's a very good point. Um, and it's where it gets really interesting, actually, because when Christian checks in at a hotel with his new digital wallet, it actually protects his privacy um, because the app doesn't show his whole ID card and it doesn't reveal all the information on the employee's card. You basically requested some information from your ID card, some information from your business card. You say, yes, I want to share this kind of data with the hotel and you are checked in. So as you can see, only the data necessary for this process is revealed to the other party. Which is ideal. And it gets even more ideal or even better. Um, tell me about, for example, the last situation where you needed your ID card. I just needed it yesterday at, uh, at a restaurant. Probably to prove that you were over 21? Uh, yes, despite that I look <laughs> about 55, but yeah, that's fine. <laughs> You do not. So, listeners, he does not. <laughs> um, so There's nothing wrong with looking 55, <laughs> but then to be 21. You said that they needed to know that you're over 21, um, but they actually didn't need to know your date of birth. And somehow, right. because you showed your ID card, you revealed that unwillingly, um, and you revealed much more. Um, for example, in Germany, on your ID card, you do have your home address. I'm not sure how it is in the US. Also, yes. Um, okay, so... There you have it. They can actually just copy your, your home address as well. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. with the kind of digital wallet that Christian works on, you could just prove to someone you're over 21 without having to reveal your actual age, the date of birth, your place of birth, or your home address, for example. Wow. And that is where things get a bit uh, crazy. This is something that we call zero-knowledge proof or zero-knowledge proof systems or protocols which is basically just the idea of a cryptographic proof which leaks no further information but what you want to prove. 
cryptographic zero knowledge proofs. Very interesting. But can we talk a little bit about how they work? Well, as Christian said, let's go a bit crazy, Jeff. I have a magic trick of my own. It's not as uh, spectacular as your mentalist uh, moment, let's say, but um, (laughs) it explains zero knowledge proofs somewhat. But I need a little help for this. Uh, and so I'd like to introduce my wonderful assistant, Patrick. Yeah. Hey, Patrick. Hi. So, listeners, you need to know we're all recording at home, and uh, the three of us can see each other on a video call. Patrick, please show us what you have in front of you. What I have here is two identical chips. They're pretty much like poker chips. So, Jeff, you agree that they are identical? Yeah, they look the same to me. So, great. Here's how this works. I want you to send Patrick a private chat message and tell him to swap the chips or not to swap the chips. Patrick then moves his camera away from the chips and does as you told him. Then he shows us the chips again, and I'm going to tell you if they were swapped or not. Understood? I think so. I'm typing right now. Okay, got it. I'm turning my camera away and do this. And now... So, from what I can see, I think you swapped them. Uh, yes, Shuko, correct. They were changed. Merci beaucoup. Merci beaucoup. So, I now have proven to you that I can tell these chips apart without revealing what the difference is. Yeah, okay. I think, I mean, you got lucky. There was a 50% chance of you guessing the correct answer. Okay, so let's do this again. Okay, let's play a game. Okay, Patrick, here's your next hint. Okay, I got your message. Yeah, I think you guys swapped it here. Yeah, that's correct. Shuko, guess? Not swapped. Swapped. Are you how do you do this? I am always right. Okay, okay. Now I believe you. Uh, you do indeed, apparently, have the power to tell two chips apart. Congratulations. I, I'm sure there's a lot of real-world application there. Um, but... The important part is you didn't reveal anything else. And that's how magic works. Um, Or in this case, zero-knowledge proofs. Well, a very simplified version of them. It's a lot more complicated than that, and it's also a very novel field. So it's still a lot of research being done on these kind of proofs. And in our case, what that means is the way we handle credentials right now in the digital world is that we always have signatures. And these signatures are something that I can check with a public key. Is this signature actually coming from the correct entity? Okay, and I'm going to stop him right there just for a second because we don't need to get into the difference between public and private keys right now. Uh, But first, are you not going to reveal, Shuko, how exactly you pulled this trick off? Jeff, were you not listening to me? It's called zero-knowledge proof. (laughs) And what we do with zero-knowledge proofs is basically, instead of showing you the signature, I create a proof that I'm the owner of a credential which has certain information that I'm willing to reveal to you, but I only create a proof in a way that only you can verify this. And and to not know exactly how you pulled that off is is only only slightly frustrating. <laughs> um, but this 
cutting-edge cryptographic approach. That is really fascinating. And while Christian might know much more about that than we do, it's challenging for him too. So working with the newest technology is, is never easy. We, we all know that, whether it's hardware or software. Um, so there's still a lot of challenges to solve. Yeah, but you know, from, from the use case, why, why is this worth all this effort? Let's, let's talk a little bit more about what this is all good for. I understand, and I think all of our users and, and listeners understand the idea of proving that I'm an adult to check into a hotel room or, or I, I have my boarding pass, uh, but what else could we actually do with this? Well, if you think of it, we can do actually quite a lot of things. So you could prove very small things like, am I qualified to go to university? Using your digital high school diploma or mm -hmm. um, you know, talking about your income. My income is um, X million dollars <laughs> using your digital income statement. Um, but the real power of this technology lies in combining the different proofs. Um, okay. So let's say you want to apply for a, uh, for a college scholarship. Mm -hmm. You can simply prove online that you qualify by creating a digital proof combining data from your ID card, from your income statement, and your high school diplomas. Fascinating, right? Yeah, that uh, actually... When, when you put it that way, that actually makes a lot of sense. We we just went through this on a personal level, doing the um, visa process for my wife. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, indeed. The the amount yeah. of data we had to collect from so many different organizations was just mm -hmm. uh, a tremendous effort. And and it's all on paper, too. I had to scan everything. I thought everyone's talking about digital transformation, but everything was in paper. I took down half a rainforest just, just trying to upload this stuff. Oh, God. Uh, it it yeah. was ridiculous. And then someone's just turning around and typing it all into a digitized system anyway. It's crazy. It is. It definitely is. And so, you know, using your example, um, many things could be so much easier using this self-sovereign identity technology. So we could eliminate a lot of different steps in the various processes. And you named a few. Um, and some experts actually estimate that it could unleash a 3 to 4% boost in gross domestic product uh, by 2030. <laughs> so if we take the example again from the United States that would equal to almost $1 trillion. Okay, I'm, I'm not super sure about that number. That's, that, that is a very <laughs> large number. But it is. nonetheless, um, that is an incredible, incredible thing. But just by digitizing what is sitting in my wallet today. So, um, yein, as we say in German. <laughs> yein, so it's, it, I would say it's the beginning. Okay. Christian says SSI has applications way beyond that. So one application we could also use it in is supply chain management. Um, for instance, something that becomes more and more important, making sure that all of your suppliers adhere to ethical and environmental standards, for example. Mm -hmm. So right now what we have already is a lot of these companies are getting audited. And you have some kind of information about these audits. But supply chains is always a bit of a like a tricky topic because... Uh, most companies don't want to make such a supply chain public because then competitors would, would learn what yeah. kind of materials they're using, what companies they are mm -hmm. having relations with. They could probably get a very good understanding about the price of materials and the price of product creation and so on. Yeah. So at that point, it's also quite beneficial to have a technology where you can prove certain aspects about such a supply chain without revealing the full thing. And that business application makes makes total sense. Uh, so, and and especially for self sovereign identities. So, not just for individuals, but organizations working in a business to business environment. Definitely, um, and for machines too. So, you could delegate some of your identity to a machine, which can then act on your behalf. 
you know, we, we've talked about it before, an autonomous electric car, for instance. Mm -hmm. Let's say I have a banking credential. What I would like to be able to do is to delegate the capability to use this credential to my car so it can charge for 10 euros or whatever. Okay, that, that sounds logical. Um, but wouldn't that already be possible today? I mean, I, I can load my credit card onto my phone and onto my watch and any other device I want, really. And then I can make purchases with it directly. You know, I mean, you do that at any coffee shop these days. And why couldn't I just do that with the car as well? Or the car could send me a notification while I'm driving it and I could verify a purchase, mm -hmm. for example. Well, for, for these kind of, of things right now, you always need the central entity. Mm -hmm. You always have a payment provider. Um, so most of these systems create some form of monopoly or central entity that is in control of the system. Sure. And what we are trying to achieve with decentralized identity is to have a system where you as the user, as the holder, are in control. And like everyone that is interacting in the system basically can choose themselves whom to trust and whom to interact with, but the whole system is not in control of like one entity. Right. And in this case, Christian brings up an interesting point, and that is trust in a decentralized system. So if I'm in full control, and maybe I give my car some rights to use part of my identity, how does someone else or something else, let's say like a charging station, how do they know that the credentials that they're using are valid, that they can trust them? And the answer here is pretty simple. You've mentioned it before, public and private cryptographic keys. Right. And, and so that comes back to the same basic principle which the internet is, is relying on. When I go to my bank's website, there is some public key cryptography and, which secures the connection. Jeff, shall we explain how it actually works? I, well, can we make it short? Super short. So this is not really a magic trick. Unfortunately, but for this, we should imagine that <laughs> I can't make it. Fortunate for me. Yeah, you'd be wrong again. <laughs> but for this, we should imagine that we are all not on a video call, but in the same room. So you, me, let's take our producer, Steph, this time. Hi there. Hi, Steph. Hi. So even though in real life we do trust Steph. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> let's say in this scenario, we don't. <laughs> so Steph is some evil person on the internet. But you, Jeff, uh, you want to send me a secret message. Um, we've never talked before, mm -hmm. so you can't just encrypt your message uh, because I wouldn't know how to decipher it. And you can't tell me how to decipher it because then obviously Steph would hear as well. Right. But here's what I can do. I can send you this box and it comes with an open padlock. I can send it to you in an unprotected way. Mm -hmm. What I'll do is I'll pass the box and the open padlock to Steph and Steph passes it to you. So in this context, um, Steph's seen an empty box, she's seen an open padlock, but no information has been lost. Um, and now that you have the box with you, you can put your message inside of this box and you can lock it with the padlock that Steph has given you. Right. This locked box, you can now give back to Steph. Mm -hmm. And this is where it becomes very frustrating for her because she's obviously seen the whole process, but she can't open the box. She doesn't know what's in it. And she has to give this closed mystery box back to and me. She burns in hell. <laughs> no, she doesn't. But she she curiously looks at me without knowing what is in this box because obviously, seeing as I sent you the padlock, um, I can open it with my key. Right. So open the padlock. That's your public key. Exactly. And everybody can see it. Yeah. Everybody, including Steph. But when someone secures the information with this public key, only you, Shuko 
have the private key with which to unlock it. Precisely. And that's the basis of all internet security today. That's right. And now, of course, on top of that, there are mechanisms, the, the actual technology which makes this possible, for instance, to prove that this is really and truly your key. Um, and there are places where you can leave copies of your public key as well so that other people can find them and use them. And what we are doing is somewhat similar. The only thing that we first have to do is we have to actually find the public key, which is some synchronization layer for the cryptographic material, which we call decentralized identifiers. So that is where you would get, uh, be getting your public keys from, let's say, for example, from the organization that is creating ID cards in Germany, which is called Bundesdruckerei. They would have a decentralized identifier, which are used to look up their public key, which they can also use to update this information, for example. And then I can verify, okay, this kind of information is actually coming from the Bundesdruckerei, which I trust. I just want to point out that the... Uh hilarity and funniness of Bundesdruckerei, which sounds like state printer when we're talking about digital identities. <laughs> but we're going to leave that alone. Never mind. Sorry, I five seconds. <laughs> it's true. It's true. The state printer gives me my digital identity. Come on. I t- no, but I just, I know. I, <laughs> but I just got the connection. I think you being European and maybe too long in Germany, I didn't see the link there. <laughs> Brain fart. Uh-huh. So with self-sovereign identity, the public keys will not be stored in a centralized place. Um, Instead, Christian and many others involved with developing this technology want it to be an entirely decentralized system. So it should not be controlled by a single government or company or other organization or entity. And if you haven't lived under a rock for the past 10 years, which I assume you haven't, you know where this is going. And I hope all our listeners, too, we're getting to blockchain. Ding, ding, ding. Which is the fundamental technology behind Bitcoin and and all of the other cryptocurrencies as well. Or distributed ledger technology, as Christian calls it. DLT. Distributed ledgers, they exist for like a bit more than 10 years now. So it's still very, very new technology. Mm -hmm. And we want to use this in a very different way. We don't want to use like something like Bitcoin for payment. We want to use it for synchronization of data. Mm Mm-hmm. So that is one part where we have to make sure that everything is working fine and we don't have weaknesses in our consensus mechanism and so on. And that's exactly what Christian and his team are working on. So uh, with this, proofs are verified against this decentralized infrastructure um, to make sure that nobody is in full control of it. But he says a distributed ledger, or I think you called it DLT, Mm -hmm. um, is just what they're using right now. It might turn out that there are better technologies to do this in the future. Could be the case. Um, But so where between research and application is this? Um, We heard about the cutting-edge technologies that they're using for self-sovereign identities. Mm -hmm. But also the pilot projects are already being implemented as well. Um, That the German government, is the Bundesdruckerei, is uh, issuing digital ID cards for testing purposes. And also, this only makes sense if it doesn't work in Germany alone, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you want it to become a worldwide standard for this to work. So you know how I love when you ask a question and you answer it yourself? Um, so here, yeah. uh, <laughs> all of the above. <laughs> so in Germany, for example, let's start there. We have the governmentally funded project, public funded project called ID Union, where we are researching this kind of technology and we are creating a test network to try out the technology. We have similar things happening in Finland, I think France, Spain. So a lot of European countries are doing this. Then on the whole European level, you also have something called 
ASIF, European SSI Framework Lab. And then the different governments are also currently starting and well, asking their organizations that are currently issuing government IDs to also look into these technologies. Clearly, there are high, high levels of interest in this as mm -hmm. everybody is trying to do something with this. So we, we are currently, I would say, in the very beginning where, where people are experimenting with this technology, but are like moving to first pilot use cases, first trying it out. Yeah, and, and I can't wait. I mean, this, this really makes you think, you know, we, we talked a lot about a connected economy, connected societies, all of that. And, and we've touched on these things in our previous episodes. But I think without technology like a self-sovereign identity, uh, this, this really is, is kind of superficial. So yes, uh, self-sovereign identity elevates it. It brings digitalization to a whole new level. Um, when I think about it, my last, oh God, my last transatlantic flight, for example, <laughs> I had to take a picture of my passport, um, <laughs> upload it to my airline's website, and then silly uh, show it again at the airport check-in anyway. So it really feels like we've only gone halfway. Um, a digital passport that I could share from my phone would make so much more sense. Yeah, and I think it's a really great idea for individual citizens and just users generally to to control as much of that as possible. Mm -hmm. I, I don't really want to turn around one day and upload my passport or you know whichever credential to some other entity just because they provide an authentication interface. Because then I have to trust that exactly you know, as as a third party. It's it's like when we used to be cautious, you know, before about opening your wallet up to a stranger, <laughs> uh, as an example. Um, that kind of physical control over whom we show information about us, we've we've lost that to a degree. Yeah, especially when you think about social media as well. <laughs> but I think it's important to <laughs> yes. say that yes, the technology behind self-sovereign identities is incredibly complicated, um, which is necessary to make it secure. So a bit, uh, yeah, a bit complicated, but. In the end, for users, it's supposed to be simple. Right. Um, and there are many challenges to solve on that front, too, um, to make it really simple to use, but really secure. These systems right now are getting built mainly by people from this field, from, from distributed systems, from cryptography and so on. So we are still lacking quite a bit on the part of user experience. But here's how Christian envisions it. Right now, as we are scanning a QR code, for example, provided on the website, and then on your smartphone, if you get a request, please prove to me that you are over 18. You can then see, okay, I have a credential that would fit this kind of request. Let's say your personal ID card would be meeting the requirements of the webshop. Then you say, yes, please construct the, the proof that I'm over 18 from this. And then this proof would be transferred whenever you allow it. So you are in direct control. And then the webshop would have the proof that you as a buyer are over 18. And it can verify that this was coming from a credential issued from the German state, for example. It's almost magical, isn't it, Jeff? <laughs> yeah, I see what you did there. You could say that, yes. <laughs> okay, I think that's a wrap, right? See you here next month. Indeed, next month. And then it's going to get hot. We're going to go to Britain, and we're going to check out how people are staying warm and cozy in the winter. So we're turning on the heat, I suppose. Well, we'll see. That's right. Bye. Bye to all listeners, and of course, thanks for listening. Don't hesitate to give us those likes or comments or follow us on your favorite audio app. From know-how to wow. The Bosch Global Podcast.
Well, I have to admit, seeing as I participated to the session that Jeff sent us, I was not so surprised about the topic. Um, the, these things, though, really are, um, when when done appropriately and when mm -hmm. people actually understand and make use of these things, it's, it is truly a game changer. I'm excited for it. I've been I've been a crypto fan since since the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, it was in 2013 that I uh, first went to a Bitcoin ATM in the Merchandise Mart in Chicago. Oh gosh! And really and truly, you know, you put real American money, the green stuff, into a machine, and then it put up a QR code on its screen. Okay. <laughs> and it, you scanned it, and it's like, oh, you have you have crypto now. That was it. It's wild. And so when you can put those things in the context of actually identifying yourself, like we talked about, you know, mm -hmm. your age or, mm -hmm. yes, I did get a diploma from this university mm -hmm. or, you know, pick pick your qualification, what, whatever. Um, to have actual control over that as a user, that's something special. Because right now you, you simply don't have it and you don't, you don't recognize the, the danger that could be with that um, by having a, a, um, a central entity yeah. being in control of those things, you know, uh, it's a dangerous aspect. But we're getting there. I'm but it's excited. not only from a date from a from a, from an aspect of I think the the more you feel secure about your identity and about what you control to other people, you'll also be more open about sharing certain other things because you're thinking, okay, it's not going to be used in 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 certain aspects. You know, I'm I'm just thinking about my donor card. I have this little plastic thing that basically if I hold it in my wallet when I have a accident or whatever, only through this can somebody tell the German government or whatever that I'm an organ donor. It's n it's not put. Really? Yeah, there's no digitalization of this thing. So if I land in hospital and nobody That's can tell them that I'm an organ donor, th there won't be anything about it. And I mean, through this, you could potentially have my blood group, my everything. And I wouldn't mind sharing this to to certain things. You know, if I know it's not going to go off to. That's fascinating. I don't know what how many different things, but you know, it's. I think it's also from a sharing perspective. If I know my data is secure and I can control who is accessing it and what I'm giving them, I'll be more likely to share this kind of information in the future.